Today's episode is with Jeffrey Davis. Jeffrey is the founder of Tracking Wonder, and they have a website, trackingwonder.com. They're a branding consulting agency, but they're more than that. They're leading and guiding businesses to be true to their mission and to be true to themselves, which is a very big thing in this very social media driven world. But Jeffrey and I talk about a lot of other things other than just business. We talk about parenting and writing and creativity as a concept for everyone and how everyone has their own creative genius, which I totally believe as well. So hope you all enjoy the show with Jeffrey Davis, founder of Tracking Wonder. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference in our health, happiness, and success. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Jeffrey Davis. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Meredith. How are you? I'm doing very well, actually. So where are you located? Is it snowing there? It's snowing beautifully. Actually, it snowed for 36 hours, ended yesterday at 1. I'm in the Hudson Valley of New York, which is about 90 minutes north of the city. Oh, very nice. So we're in Atlanta, Georgia, and we have had snow. And it's we've had a lot of snow in the last several months. It's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. My friends in Nashville and Texas have said the same yeah. thing. The difference is... You know, the biggest um, budget item in our town is probably road salt, you know, so (laughs) it's never a big deal here. Whereas sometimes if you guys just get like a whiff of snow, then the whole city shuts down. Am I right? (laughs) You are are very right. There's panic and yeah. But I mean, with good reason. I was stuck in my car for eight hours back in the first snowpocalypse where no one... Everyone let out the schools and the work at the same time and piled on the road. So it's everyone likes to make fun of us, but that was like a terrible day to be stuck in the car with two kids who I think were four and five at the time. And I mean, yeah. it was nuts. It was really, yeah, really crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You really do want to stay off the roads. So for <laughs> sure. Not used to it. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. So I'm excited to talk with you about all the things you've got going on and and one of the things that we mentioned before we started recording was just creativity and creativity in our day-to-day lives. And I think that's such an important part of our lives and and process as, you know, especially as moms and parents and athletes and all of that. So I definitely want to get into that, but let's talk a little bit about your background and kind of how you became Jeffrey Davis today. (laughs) Sure, sure. What do you (laughs) want to Let's start with the day you were born. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so how did you get interested in, I mean, you're an, an author and you're a thought leader. Like, how did you get interested in writing? Have you always been a writer? Yeah, you know, um, in many ways, yes. Uh, so I actually, uh, I'm in New York. I found my home here, uh, but I grew up in in Texas, and that comes with all kinds of associations and connotations. And I often <laughs> say, you know, I grew up sort of like a a poet in a Texan's body. <laughs> and by that, I mean that I was just sort of naturally drawn more toward the arts instead of athletics, more toward creativity instead of competition. Um, my mother saw that. My father 
saw that and um, and they nurtured nurtured it in their own respective ways. Uh, my father um, gave me when I was pretty young, six seven years old. Uh, he gave me his father's uh, day book. Now his father had died like years before I was born, and his father was a, a, a doctor. And so my father gives me my grandfather's day book, which was sort of like a, you know, a daily planner, you mm-hmm. know, from 1946. And I was like, well, what do I do with this? He said, well, you, you, you sort of keep track of your thoughts and what happens to you during the day and so forth. <laughs> and it was just like a completely new concept that I even had thoughts and that people wrote them down. And um, the very first entry, like I could barely write at the time. You right. Know, and in first grade. Um, and uh, I can still remember um, this this moment in, in Texas in our neighborhood. My sister is about six, seven years older than I am. And she had this friend, Teresa, that I had a major crush on. <laughs> and and uh, Teresa, and so I was looking at my day book literally outside and, and she comes along probably to see my sister and she asked me what I'm doing. And, and I tell her about this book and how I can't write. And so she says, you know, I'll, she basically takes dictation. Like I could barely write my name now that I recall. And, and <laughs> so she's like, what do you want me to write? And I, I kid you not, like my first entry was, um, I love Teresa. Teresa <laughs> loves me. When she turns 18, she will freeze herself. And then we'll, and then when I turn 18, she will unfreeze herself and we will get married. It's just kind of like, <laughs> she had always told me about that is awesome and so wait she wrote that for you you dictated that to her she wrote that for me and I dictated it out loud to her because it was our ongoing fantasy that she completely indulged me with you know she I had learned that Walt Disney had himself frozen when he died so you know she had built up this fantasy that it was possible to freeze yourself and then unfreeze yourself. And then somehow we would be the same age. And then that's hilarious. <laughs> that is so funny. So where is Teresa now? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. It's just right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. So when you say your dad gave you his day planner, was it blank or it was just like a blank day planner or did he have, did your grandfather have entries in there? Actually, it had entries from my grandfather and from my father when he was uh, a boy, before, uh, right around when he was uh, 11 or 12. And uh, so I can recall there were notes from my grandfather, my grandfather's writing from probably like, I, I think it was 1946 or so, if I recall. And there were just his appointments on a particular date and, and so forth. And then my father had certain entries. I can still remember one of them was something like I was out mowing the lawn and then my friends Joe and so and so came by and then we we took off somewhere, right? <laughs> and uh, and there were just a few of those entries from my father, but it was enough to really keep me fascinated and I had tried um that year and then and the next year to to kind of keep up with like so if it said February 5th uh, 1946. I tried February 5th that year, whatever year it was, 1974 or so, to write down a thought 
you know, or write down a, a memory on, on that particular day. So um, it was a small gift, but it was an incredibly influential gift. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. So where did you go after the planner? Like, where did your kind of writing and your, <laughs> we should probably find out what happened to Teresa at some point, but like <laughs> what happened with, you know, did you just start journal? I mean, I know for me, like I, I had notebooks, sort of like you. I was writing stories and poetry before I could even really spell. I just I felt like it was this thing I had to do, like a compulsion. Did did it kind of translate like that for you as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting that you did too. Yeah. So uh, my father gave me one of his old typewriters when I was in fourth grade, and I started uh, learning loosely how to type stories although I wasn't very fast, as you can imagine. And I had, I had typed out a story. And then again, my, my older sister was reading it. And it was, you know, a fictional story, even though I didn't really have the words for that then. But I'd imagine it made it up. And, uh, but maybe it was kind of loosely based on me and one of my friends. And, and Teresa. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Teresa, exactly. <laughs> so she's reading it. And then it sort of outlandish. I think there were probably robbers involved and so forth. She's like, this isn't true. And I just thought, oh, you just don't get it. Right. So <laughs> I at least experience of being a writer, right? Just not being good. So uh so yeah, I you know, I stayed I didn't stay persistently focused on writing thereafter, but when I was a teenager, I did deliberately keep notebooks, you know, very privately to myself. And uh it was in part because I I can remember almost the day when I was probably fifteen or sixteen. And, and uh, I was noticing, um, as I'm sure many teenage, teenagers noticed, like my mind was changing. My, uh, my imagination was changing. I, I didn't f experience the world like so imaginatively as I did when I was a boy. And I think I was um, at the time a, a summer camp counselor. So I was around younger kids and I was like, hmm, you know, I'm missing something. <laughs> that boyhood imagination. And so I started writing in part deliberately to kind of keep that intact. And on into college uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, I declared my you know major as a freshman because we all had to declare majors. And since all my friends were in business or you know pre-law, whatever, so I, I just declared my major as business. And at the time, I really had no interest in, in business, although I obviously have a successful business now. <laughs> but um, I, uh, uh, when I was a sophomore, I, I kind of, all my friends went right into business, pre-law, marketing, uh, accounting, whatever. And I took a left into uh, the liberal arts. And then I went further left into poetry and, and started. You really made a square. You were like left, left, left. <laughs> 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 and that's when I really uh, became committed and, and devoted to to being a writer. And that's really what I sort of obsessively focused on in my 20s was was writing and teaching and, and publishing. I think that's so commendable and I'm so envious of you because I went to college and said, you know, when I declared my major, I declared it in English and literature. And then the comments from my, you know, pre-law accounting business friends started like what are you what are you going to do for money <laughs> how yeah. are you going to make a living and I said oh well that's a really good point maybe I should be a lawyer and I totally I made 
an opposite direction. And I went totally against everything that my entire childhood and soul told me to do. And I headed straight to law school and it took me, you know, I continued to write and I, I, I blogged and stuff, but yeah, I just, I gave it up and, and it took me a long time to realize how unhappy it made me to have, have made that choice. So I think it's cool. You, you listen to yourself. I think this is a an, an incredibly um, pervasive pattern among people I talk to all around the world, really. And what's interesting, Meredith, is how many of them took that path into law. Like I, yes. I with so many recovering lawyers, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I think that that path is always interesting. And and in fact, when somebody was interviewing me, he said. Because when I was 20, I started pulling away. Um, I was even, I was in a fraternity. I was being made rush captain. I was like, I don't think this is the path I want to go. And so I started pulling away and asking myself questions about what did I want. And I wanted a meaningful life. That's all I could say to myself. That's all I knew. And I didn't see a lot of, you know, models necessarily around me. But um, I was fortunate. Um you know, I, in, in retrospect, I think when I was a teenager, both of my parents, they were divorced and they, you know, it was kind of a hands-off parenting and upbringing. I was very much on my own in, in some ways, sort of like in a benign neglect of growing up in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And yet my father, both of them were incredibly supportive of whatever I wanted to do. And um, so in college, when I told my father, I want, you know, I want to be a writer, he was in uh, Dallas's media world, and he was he was known for just being like this uh, kind of charismatic sales guy in, in Dallas radio with Dallas Cowboys and so forth, and and so he knew a lot of writers in uh, um, in the in the media world and even outside of it, and so he um, intentionally, when I was twenty twenty one, would arrange for me to have lunches and, and, and talk to other writers who's completely supportive. And in fact, what's funny, Meredith, with your path is that I started questioning it. And my father gave me such, such little advice. He would always say, why are you asking me? I don't know. And <laughs> so I asked him, you know, should I be a lawyer? Um, because I don't know, I'm going to make money. And, um, and he's like, well, you know, I look at a couple of my friends and like, if you're going to be a lawyer, you know, you should go into corporate law because then you can retire at 40 and then mm -hmm. you can write your books and do whatever you want. But ultimately you do what you want to do. And so that was That's awesome. And so I, um, yeah, I went on and I, you know, I, uh, in my twenties, I made a living by, uh, by teaching and by editing and developing an editing business and then helping, other authors sell their book proposals for five, six figures and kind of trying to do a, a, um, a kind of side hustle uh, while I was teaching full time. And then I just stopped teaching for anybody, really stopped working for anybody, as I say, except for my best self when I was about 32 or 33 and have since then just gradually developed my own business into what's morphed into uh, Tracking Wonder, which is a consultancy. And I had a my own team. And I think it's been that background in, well, I know it's been that background in creativity, living creatively, um, writing, uh, just practicing ongoing, putting ideas onto the page into concepts and stories that, that 
and po poetry that that moves people uh, has helped me in this current iteration. Uh, you know, we're a branding and thought leadership consultancy, and now we have an international community, which kind of blows my mind. Uh, and we have this little grassroots movement of business artists. We have uh, people who have uh, meetups in three different countries now, um, kind of having meetups uh, using some of our principles for doing business is unusual. So for me, once I decided years ago, after being sort of, you know, a pseudo communist in Austin, which is what you know, <laughs> right. I'm a communist. Being a pseudo communist in Austin, I just decided several years ago, once I started, you know, having a family and and so forth, like, hmm, I kind of need to build something for the long term. I, I need to get a little smart about business, but I can only do it on my own terms. I, I can only build a business on my own terms and not in the way I thought about business when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. And it still kind of blows my mind that that's what we've done. There's so much here. I just want to, I want to, there's so many things I want to say and talk about and ask you questions about. But I think one of the things that stands out to me, first of all, is the the relationship with your father and how that you're a parent does that, I mean, I know your children are a little young, but I was always trying to please my parents. And, and a lot of um, decisions I made came, I think, out of fear-based for they wanted me to have a better life than they did. And so that, you know, it was like, you will go to college, you will do these things. And none of those are necessarily bad ideas, but I think I always just wanted to make sure that um, I was making everyone proud and, and taking care of everyone's future and that kind of thing, which I think has made me raise my children a little bit differently because I took this long detour and I'm right where I want to be now, but I could have been doing this all along. <laughs> and, mm. <clears throat> excuse me. And so, you know, when I parent, when I'm parenting, which is, you know, just a couple hours a day, just kidding. But when I'm, you know, raising these kids, I'm, I'm trying to always think, okay, what is my son's, you know, what is his thing? He's creative. What is, how can I nurture that? Or how can I sort of let him come to the decisions that he wants with his future? Anyway, it sounds like your dad did a great job with that. You know, it's funny in retrospect, he died um, in 2012. And, and certainly since his death, I, more and more, I appreciate what he did the best of his abilities because it really wasn't until they divorced that then he invited me to live with him, uh, which was an experience to live with my bachelor father as a teenager. And, and uh, so, but we really weren't, I didn't, I didn't feel that close until then. And yet there were those times when he did, he did see something and me uh, ongoing gave me a love of language early on. And then my mother was certainly paying attention those first 12, 13 years in very instrumental ways. So yeah, to answer your question, it's such a rich question that I have given a lot of thought to. Um, first, I didn't, uh, I didn't actually think I would be a good father. So I didn't want to have children for a long time. And then when I met my wife, Hillary, I thought, maybe I could be a good father. <laughs> so I think about it a lot. And I think about it actually in similar terms as you do um, in that I, I observe, I try to watch. I feel like that's one of my um, most important responsibilities as a father. In addition to protect and guide, it's to observe and listen. And 
I have an eight-year-old little girl and a three-year-old little girl, and they're both very different. And just like, as I heard parents say before me, I could tell from the get-go um, when each of them were born that, that they would be different once the second one was born. So um, I, I kind of... I, well, I don't kind of, I do believe something similar to what classical Greeks like Aristotle would talk about. They would talk about we're each born with this sort of genius, what in Greek was called the daemon, that is kind of like this acorn that goes beyond how we're raised. It goes beyond our genetic code. There's just something unique to each one of us that acts as sort of like uh, a sort of guardian angel or some sort of thing within our personality that keeps reminding us of, of what we're here for. And, um, and we have to keep paying attention to that. And if we don't, then it, then it kind of acts out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it, it's very common and I would encourage you and anybody else out there who like didn't pay attention to that genius when you were 19 or 20 in that very vulnerable stage and you kind of mm -hmm. made one choice is not to regret it, but say, okay, well now I am paying attention to my genius. And, um, and more importantly for me as a father, I want to pay attention to my genius as a model for my girls. And my wife does the same thing. And so that we don't like, uh, try to live vicariously through our children. Yes. And then they grow, and then our children grow up respecting, oh, okay, well, there are boundaries and there are things that mother does beyond me. And there are things that father does beyond me. They're still protecting me. They're still paying attention, but they right. have their own lives. And that means we get to have our own lives. So I do try to, I, I watch both girls and um, maybe this will be interesting for your, uh, your parent listeners. Um, because I'm daily helping people think through their branding from the inside out. Um, this might be an interesting definition to think of it as your, your brand at home. Your brand is the total emotional experience people have with you. Your ah. brand emotional experience people have with you. So, um, you know, uh, when my first little girl was, um, was, born I we had just come off of a like a 15 month house fire we were out of the house for like 15 months in another house while our house was being restored I had Lyme's disease chronically and I was just like really off um I guess so yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> a lot <laughs> and then as I as I uh, recaptured my health I I was like I I need to be really attentive to what my little girl's emotional experience is with me. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I've, I've taken super good care of myself and obsessively and, and really am attentive to what is her and now her little sister's emotional experience with me so that they have really good memories. So, you know, this morning, uh, she was on a two hour delay because we had a snow delay here too. And I thought, okay, uh, she's here. Um, she's going to play, you know, whatever, maybe we could just spend a little time together before the bus comes and picks her up. So we went and, um, I said, Hey, let's bundle up and let's go take a walk down the road. And, um, because I have this very deliberate intention just to be present with her and to listen to her. And so we walked down the road and, 
you know, I'm just asking her questions and what she's looking forward to and what she's been playing and so forth. And, and then she sees this on the road, um, this dead woodpecker, this red-bellied woodpecker on the road. It was freshly dead. We don't know how it died. Mm -hmm. And she's extremely uh, sensitive um, mm -hmm. to animals and just all beings. And so she points and I said, oh, what do you want to do? She said, we should find a place to to bury it and like honor it somehow. And so we traipse into the, you know, one foot high snow and find a place under an evergreen and we we bury it and express gratitude for its beauty and and then we're we're walking home and she's like, I'm uh, I'm, I'm I'm crying. I don't know why. And so uh, so we we went home, we, we got some tea and and just sat before the bus came and, and just talked, talked a little bit about death and uh, about accepting that, which we had already had that conversation when she was about three when, when my father died. And, um, and, uh, and then it was time for her to hop on the bus. And, and I, you know, I don't know if she's going to remember that, but I, I will. And yeah. it was just an opportunity for me to be really present and listen to her and watch her and observe her. And she is, uh, before we went on that walk, she showed me a new book that she had made. So she's already, she's eight years old. She makes books in mm -hmm. history. I love it. Eight pages long. Right. But, you know, she's got story mind. She's a maker. Um, she makes all kinds of things and knitting and sewing and crafting and whatever. And so I just watched that. Um, will I be, uh, concerned on whether or not she's going to make money? Um, I don't know. We'll see when that comes, but I'm not, you know, adamant about getting her into an Ivy league school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to pay for Ivy league. So I'm fine <laughs> if they don't want to do exactly. that. And my husband's like, no, we, you know, he's like all into that. And I'm just like, no, I just, I, I, I'm like the opposite of, um, I think I'm just going to the other end of the spectrum because I fear so much that they're going to waste time not pursuing what they're passionate about and being unhappy yeah. and getting addicted to alcohol, you know, and yeah, going into right. jail. And so I think I'm just at the other end of the spectrum where I need to kind of maybe pull to center a little bit more like, you know, you don't need to sell beaded necklaces on the side of the road. Like that's, that's not okay. I mean, maybe it is, but I need to have a little bit more expectation. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But well, for you know, me, I'm I like, did... we'll just create an Etsy channel and you can sell your beaded necklaces and do videos. It'll work out fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting. Cause I do, I, um, I write regularly, um, on the psychology of creativity and the psychology of branding for psychology today. And so, I do immerse myself a lot in psychology as well and and um <clears throat> and some of the psychology of parenting and and so one thing that I learned early on was okay well what kind of qualities do I and values do I want to reinforce in um in both girls and so something I learned was um not to praise her for instance for saying oh good girl good girl or you know or that's wrong or and so forth instead and not to build up self-esteem but instead to build up resilience so you know she was three years old or so trying to put together puzzles and she would get frustrated she'd just cry and quit and so my job I would just kind of keep coaching her to keep trying 
with the puzzles and Telsey would go to more complicated puzzles. And instead I would say, wow, I really uh, uh, appreciate the way that you just kept trying, mm-hmm. kept trying. So this, me- this message, this lesson is ongoing. She got really frustrated uh, in a sewing lesson because the sewing machine wasn't working. She was having a meltdown. And so we just kind of had the same conversation. Like, you know what, you're always going to have frustrations when you're doing stuff you love and, and your job as an artist, if that's what you want to be is to like, keep working through the challenges. And the ship says she would do that. And then I'd say, oh, man, that was great. The way you worked through that challenge and, and, and you didn't give up. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of, you know, it's such a delicate Coach. balance. I mean, you know, you don't want to raise these kids. And I think so many parents right now are just in this culture where we're trying to not break them, and, but it, we're doing yeah, the opposite. I, though. I don't want to build, a, uh, build up a little fragile. She's fragile and sensitive as it is, but I, I want her to be strong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think you just see so many parents. I mean, because yeah. my kids are in sports and um, that's a whole nother ball of wax for sure. But watching, you know, my son in baseball is, is a good example. And watching the what, the different parenting styles in a little league team, that is fascinating because there's yeah. there's the parents who are obviously going to break their children's spirit by the time they're 12 because they want these kids in the major leagues. And then there's the ones who have, you know, completely talentless children and the parents are like, you are amazing. You are doing so great. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, that kid is not doing great. Like not even close. Like just don't say anything to him (laughs) because you're giving him so so much confidence. (laughs) I hear you exactly. It's so tricky. And I find myself sometimes on that end and I don't want to. And I also, I was listening to what you said several minutes ago too about always trying to please your parents, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I watch that especially with the older daughter. Um, and I and I've often heard from some of my clients that uh, sometimes it is an oldest sibling tendency to always please the parents. So I do watch that, um, and and I watch how many times I have said you're such a good girl and then I'm like I don't want to reinforce that to the point where when she was in first grade I would say now if anybody says or does anything you don't agree with you should stand up and say something (laughs) and she has she's learned to advocate sometimes when another kid is annoying her or something like that so she has as quiet as she is it really encouraged her to speak up question even if it's the teacher like we're always respecting our teachers but to question what's going on to question me and like Mm -hmm. so we we have this ongoing dialogue right between me like praising oh you're so good and then me saying you know um i told her this morning before she got on the bus i said be kind be brave take risks (laughs) (laughs) sometimes in the evening i'll say so how are you kind today how are you brave today how did you take risks today how did you mess up you know yeah so I'm trying to, I'm trying the best I can, but you know what? The genius is way beyond whatever I'm going to do. And, uh, at a certain point it's going to be out of my hands. Right. The one thing that I struggle with is I see in my son, especially, and I always talk about him, but it's because he's, he and I are so much alike. It, the, the apple and tree is very close. Um, and that, and, and us, but my fears with him 
is I see him doing, you know, wanting to please people and, you know, it's, what do you want to do? Oh, whatever you want to do. Or are you okay, mom? Like he's always worrying about how I'm feeling and how his dad's feeling. And so I am just always nervous that he's going to embody all those fears and then deal with them in unhealthy ways like I did. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that's, that's one is of my big struggles. He or is old? the older one. He is the older one and his sister, they're only 14 months apart and, um, she's very free spirited and, and strong willed and very creative. They're both very creative, but just very different. Like you said, yours are. Yeah, similar dynamic too. The younger one is very strong. Like I saw it from the first couple of days. It was like, oh, this one is sure-footed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what he got coming at me. Oh, is that what we call it? Is that the PC term, sure-footed? <laughs> <laughs> that was just like just the way she even carries herself. Yes, like yes. people see it in her. Like she just, you know, she's confident. You try to make, you know, you try to. She doesn't like to be called adorable, you know. She, right. She's so, like, I'm a warrior. I am not adorable. I'm a, yeah. Exactly. So what, um, yeah, so uh, what do you do to, like, try to, uh, A lot of know. the same things you mentioned. I mean, I, I do, I say, you know, we're always going to be kind and, you know, to be brave. I say that, too, is, is yeah. be brave. And, um, you know, there I can look at both of them and see so many strengths and it's like when I see them, all I see is their strengths and they're very different, but they're both equally as powerful. It's just so different. And it's, it's mesmerizing to me. And it's also very humbling because I realize, um, it has nothing to do with me that I'm, you know, just here to, to be a part and to guide. And, and, and that's terrifying too, because I'm a control freak, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I mean, And I think creativity, and that's what I love about the work you do is, you know, you run into people so often who say, oh, you're so creative. I am not creative. And what do you think about that? Everyone's got their creative genius, right? They do, because if you just boil down what creativity is, then you see that um, you either are being more creative every day than you realize, or you could be more creative every day than you realize to really... Um, go back to what I said earlier is that every day is going to present challenges and they're inevitable, you know, and you have choices. You have, first you have the challenges that you choose to take on and then you have the choice on how you're going to handle those challenges. So, so much of creativity is about problem tracking and problem solving. And if you've got problems during the day and you have to find solutions for them and you do find solutions for them, then you possibly are creative because creativity it's like this it is this biological impulse in us as mammals to make something new and useful new and useful those are two operative definitions and everyday creativity involves generating coming up with novel and useful ideas and solutions and then actually executing novel and useful solutions so um you know, my, my older daughter was just, uh, she was more emotional, more sensitive. She cried more early on and I would create all kinds of songs to mollify her (laughs) like six weeks old, seven weeks old, all kinds of creative solutions come up all of the time. 
to deflect potentially emotionally volatile situations with both girls. And my wife kind of like st stands back in awe sometimes. She's like, how did you just like, how did you do that? It's sort of like Taekwondo parenting or something. Mm -hmm. It's like, they don't even know what I'm doing. I'm not manipulating them, but I'm also not getting sucked into their trauma. Wrong. <laughs> At least I try not to. And if I can pull back and say, okay, what's another, like my mind is like racing in the background quietly, like, okay, what's another way around this? How can I get around this? That's everyday creativity at work. So if somebody is at work right now listening to this, and if you have problems with technology, with uh, personnel, with a coworker, uh, with the nature of meetings or something at home, like just needs a new solution. Then you step back and say, okay, what are all the different ways I could solve this little problem and then act on it. Then you're being creative. This is the heart of innovation too. This is the heart of Evernote, right? Like the founder of Evernote couldn't remember where he stored all of his different ideas. Mm -hmm. That was really irritating to him. And so he thought, Hmm, Maybe there's an app out there that will help me store all of my different ideas, but there wasn't. So he, <laughs> right. he went forward and created Evernote. So the heart of a lot of creativity, too, I think this is really interesting for us, is um, I think it's really interesting to pay attention to what bugs us and irritates us. Mm -hmm. And I work a lot with organizations and helping them develop their thought leadership and I talk to teams sometimes and say, like, what irritates you, not just about your work, but about the nature of your field, right? And uh, so if you're playing in the health and wellness field, as this, this podcast in part does, like, what really irritates you about the messages you hear in health and wellness? <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> that means it's the ways. <laughs> Hence the podcast. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Right. And so then if you pay attention to those irritations and you think, huh, what's a way I could maybe create a different message, a different story, a different solution that can be really great impetus to quote, be creative and come up with new and useful messages, let's say, instead of new and useful solutions. Yeah. Does that make sense? It totally does. And I, I think that's kind of the path I chose unknowingly was, you know, back eight years ago, I just started telling my story. And it turned out that my story was interesting to a lot of people because I was, you know, 250 pound mom of two kids under two trying to do triathlon. And that was interesting to people. And then it mattered to people because they thought, oh my gosh, like, this this sounds like me or this is me but 100 pounds lighter or whatever but it, it was a story that that mattered to me to tell and then in turn it matters to other people and I think as long as you're telling your story that matters or a story that matters to you you're going to find your crew and, and the people that that want to connect with you that's very true it's very true I love just hearing that that snippet of your story and I and I can imagine it is a very inspiring story. And so um, story is something I think about and, and try to live out every day. And so maybe this is useful too for your listeners to en encourage them to do just what you suggested in telling their story. Because a lot of people are reluctant to tell their story. They don't want to be self-centered or 
you know, they want to deflect attention from, from themselves. And so I often, I encourage people to think of their story first as a mirror and then second as a window. So I would bet many of your listeners and fans have been inspired by your story and its particularities because they see like a mirror, they see a part of themselves and like the kind of their brokenness or, or, you know, kind of where you were before, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, I'm, I'm stuck too. Like I can't change my life. And so they see that part of themselves in the first part of your story. And so that's where it works like a mirror. They see themselves in their story. That's why stories are so powerful. Right. But then the second part of your story is like, look at you now, right? <laughs> and look <laughs> how far I still have to go. I mean, I think that's why it continues to work because it's, it's, it's like, pretty amazing because crazy. Like, I, I can barely run like, three miles and I would hate like two miles of it. Probably <laughs> <laughs> I can do sprints and then I'm, I'm good. But, um, so the fact, right, that you, you actually trained yourself for a triathlon is like, that's the window of possibility mm-hmm. that us telling our stories offers, um, to one another. So I, I love hearing that. And, and yes, like you, I would just encourage your listeners to in part take stock of their own story and how they could frame it like a mirror and then how could they frame it like a window. Yeah. And I think one thing that was really helpful and just growing as a person was starting my story where it was, you know, I didn't make these changes and then tell my story. Like I began to tell my story right where it was happening. And that's where I think so many of us don't want to speak. (laughs) We don't want people to see, you know, the downside or maybe where we're starting from. But I think when we can use it as a mirror, like you say, and come to this point of reality and, and start to talk about where we are, whether that's a place of sadness or depression or, you know, just out of shape and and whatever. Um, But letting others know where you are starting from and then continuing to talk about it, I think creates dialogue and, and, synchronicity with with so many people around us because we're all humans and so many people in social media are just trying to look like they're perfect (laughs) and that's where the breakdown is is happening it is where the breakdown is happening and i love that you you actually just gave me a new uh a new phrase which is um your story as a mirror in the moment Mm -hmm. um because i tend to be um one two who uh who will keep a lot of my my present woes and frustrations to myself because I like fear of bringing people down and like I don't want to you know throw that that stuff on them and uh, and it was only uh, you know so I, I you know for instance I got Lyme's disease a, f- a few weeks before the house fire <laughs> really wow not an easy time and we had had two miscarriages that same spring and. So it was not easy. Um, and then I, um, I had chronic symptoms for about four years and, and nobody really knew it except for my wife and a few, a few other people. And, mm-hmm. and so you're right. It was only later that I could shape that story and tell it in a way that I not, not only that I felt comfortable, but that I felt like would be valuable and useful to people. But it was only 
several years later, right? Once I'm on the other side. And so I so admire you and other people who, who tell your story in the moment. It's like, here I am right now. Here's what I'm trying to do. Come along with me on the journey and we'll see what happens. I just, I, I so admire and respect that. And I agree with you. Um, social media can be so deceiving. Um, uh, and, and, uh, the sort of Instagram uh, culture, like I told my team the other day, I said, you know, I don't have an Instagram life, you know, I, <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a model. And like, a, you know, it's, I just don't have this Instagram life, but you know, I enjoy Instagram, but right. um, so um, yeah, I, I just, I so respect what, what you said that you did. Like I started my story with my people where I am. And then we just saw where I, where I might go. Did you find in doing that, that actually your community also um, became an extension of your story? In other words, like what if you hadn't yeah. your story was- with publicly? The outcome would have been very different, right? I think it's really interesting because, you know, when I started triathlon, there just wasn't a lot of everyday people in it. And I know I take some heat for that statement, but the truth is the truth. I mean, I raced for several years before I saw anyone out on a course that looked like me. And now you can go to a race and see all sorts of shapes and sizes and it's very diverse and it's grown. The sport's grown a lot in that regard, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. And I, I don't want to take too much credit, but I think by, me stepping out and saying, I'm going to do this thing and it's very terrifying and I'm going to have to wear wet spandex and who wants to see that, that, you know, people came along with me on the journey and, and it grew like subcultures and, and smaller communities of like-minded people. And, and so I think it was very important that I did that. And, and so it always makes me kind of take a step back when I see someone and, a unique situation. I'm like, you should be writing about this. You should be posting about it because there are people out there that, that will join you. You know, if you build it, they will come. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. I I think part of the reason I started writing about it was, um, one, I knew I wanted to make a change and two, I feared failure so much that I thought it would kind of hold me accountable to tell my truth. Um, that backfired a lot. (laughs) (laughs) because I've failed a lot. And, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I've always said, if one thing I say or do or reveal about myself helps one other person on this planet, it's totally worth any of the humiliation or stupidity that follows from it. Um, you know, and and I don't know if you know, but I, I quit drinking two years ago and I wrote a blog post about it and I received so many emails just people saying, thank you for doing this. I'm going to stop drinking as well. And, you know, we have a community now, Grateful Sobriety, that's mm-hmm. built around this. And it's just because I told what was going on in my life. And it's powerful. It is powerful. And I think that's, yeah, that's what I was wondering. And I did actually read um, read about that post back in 2015 or 16. Yeah. So, so congratulations. And so, yeah, that's what I was wondering too, is that you know, by your sharing the story for where you were, you got that response and that couldn't help but like keep your momentum going because you mm-hmm. realize you're doing it alone. You know, there's right. something um, 
we say at Tracking Wonder, which is DIT beats DIY. You know, I grew up, as we talked about, this sort of like lone wolf, which I think many of us do. Um, but we say like do it together beats do it yourself. And it sounds like that's kind of what you did by sharing your story. Suddenly it wasn't just your story. It was like everybody's participating in your story. And right. it must have just given you momentum to keep going. It did. It, and, you know, my, my little online persona was Swim Bike Mom. And yeah. so I realized that this was a thing when I was at a race and I had some triathlon clothing made that had Swim Bike Mom on it. And um, I was running by this group of people and they were like, hey, I'm a Swim Bike Mom too. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm Swim Bike Mom. No, what I am the Swim Bike Mom. I am Swim Bike Mom. <laughs> you had built this like community of movement. But That's I didn't so even know it. You know, at that yeah. point, I didn't even know it had happened. And then people were like, we want T-shirts. And I'm like, okay, I'll make T-shirts. And, you know, I've kind of moved away from the Swim Bike Mom persona so much as trying to be more inclusive for all women and, and even men too. And only because I, I've realized in recent years that the mom, um, you know, persona has a lot of wonderful connotations for some people, but it's very painful for others. And yeah. they, a lot of women thought they could not be part of our community because it was swim bike mom and they had lost children or didn't have children, didn't want children. And so I've pulled away from that a little bit just out of because I, I don't want anyone to be excluded and I know you can't include everyone all the time but um, you know it's it's beyond just being swim bike mom at this point and and but it, you know that's where it started hey I'm a swim bike mom too wait no you're not I am <laughs> <laughs> I love that and I think it's really interesting too what you said because you know, um, I'm just going to pull it back into branding too just yeah. a little bit because that's um, that's where I think quite often is one, I've helped a lot of mothers rebrand themselves personally, right? So as, if they, as they've <laughs> yeah. gone off on their own ventures and they're having problems with their college-age children still pulling on them uh, or their spouses, I'm like, hmm, I think we need to do some rebranding at home for who <laughs> you are now. But the other thing is really interesting is um, – yeah, is that dynamic brands really do evolve. And so you you recognize like, okay, you know, this sort of organically, your brand emerged very organically as Swim Bike Mom. But then you're like, oh, mom has these sort of connotations and limitations. And now you have, you've pulled away from the persona. You are, whether you know it or not, you know, I'd say, oh, you're rebranding yourself. You're, you're, you're um, creating a whole different set of associations about, who Meredith is and what you're about. and where Well, you know what's funny too, Jeffrey? I mean, about the rebranding is, that, again, that, that's not been like a conscious thing. But the part of my life where I was very mired in being swim bike mom and being swim, you know, swim bike mom this and that is I was also suffering tremendously from alcohol addiction. I was suffering from depression. My hair was long and dark and braided. And I just, when I look back at all the Swim Bike Mom stuff, and it brought so much encouragement to so many people, but the stuff that was going on behind the scenes with me personally was very painful. And and so a lot of the movement away from it for me, you know, much to the chagrin of many people, is just because I've grown out of the brand. I you mean, have you seen? Yeah. 
Completely. That's exactly why we say, you know, dynamic brands evolve. And I was just giving a masterclass on this recently. And I said, you know, you may be in the situation where you, your personality, your ideas, your work in the world have just grown beyond how you've shown up publicly for the mm -hmm. past several years. And that's, that's your case. Exactly. And it, you look back and you're like, I am not that person anymore. Yeah. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And That's I've talked to a couple of people in business and they're like, you're shooting yourself in the foot, abandoning Swim Bike Mom. And I'm like, first of all, I'm not abandoning it. Abandoning <laughs> it. It's like a bucket of my life. Like I still have the triathlon bucket. I have these other things, but they're like, you're just, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And I'm like, but that's. I've never done this. I never started this to be a brand. I never I never did any of this to to be anything other than myself telling my story. And so for for me, I'm like, I don't care. I'll just tell my story where I want to tell. <laughs> like it's I I'm just like a business nightmare, I guess. <laughs> Not necessarily. Your business is as unusual dream possibly, because we're always uh, at least on my team, always helping people do business very differently. And so let's just connect some dots if I could like reverse the microphone here. And like going back to when you were 19 or 20, you followed all the, you followed the voice of, of should, right? It was like, you should go and do uh -huh. And that's what you did, but you're not that person anymore. And so now you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm operating with more integrity and I'm going to figure out how to make, make it work by yeah. attention to my integrity because your well-intended friends or advisors are saying you're shooting yourself in the foot business-wise. What they probably mean is like financially. But my experience is with organizations, heads of organizations and personal brands and uh, business owners, like if they are not operating with integrity – they're not going to be motivated to handle all of the inevitable business challenges that come up. And so then they're shooting themselves in the foot by creating a business that they're not really behind and committed to. Right. So I think just the reverse, you would shoot yourself in the heart <laughs> <laughs> if you stayed with a brand that wasn't true to you. Well, that's what's so funny now. I'm like, you guys, I already left my good paying legal job. Like I have shot myself in the foot already yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> at this point we're just going to go all in <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your about tracking wonder and what the concept of business as unusual means yeah so you know i alluded to the fact that you know several years ago i decided okay if i'm going to get serious about business i'm going to do it on my own and and which is what we've done very successfully so um a few years ago, I guess 2013 or 14, um, I was kind of taking stock, which is what I encourage my clients to do, is taking stock of what was still bugging me about business as usual, which is in part like a, a hangover, pardon the metaphor from your background, mm -hmm. That's okay. hangover <laughs> for the 20th century. And, uh, and so I did what I do, which is I just started writing some thoughts down that I thought might become a small book, but it ended up just becoming like one page and sort of like a poem about what a growing band of us are hungering for, um, that we're hungering not to destroy capitalism and replace it with anarchy, but we are hungering for something different. We're hungering for integrity. 
we're hungering for a way of doing business where we elevate people instead of manipulate people. We hunger for a way of business where we can collaborate more instead of compete for some illusory finite market share, um, things of that nature. And so I shared it with my team. Uh, I don't know what I have here. Maybe there's a video here. I shared it with my videographer. So maybe we have a poem film here, you know, it's like some short, you know, sort of aspirational film. And so we put our talents together, released uh, this manifesto film called Be a Business Artist, Business is Unusual. And uh, people from all around the world were like, oh my gosh, you've identified who I am and how I operate, you know, because I knew I, I knew I wasn't the only one really frustrated with business as usual tactics and right. being mercenary and only focused on profit. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with profit. Uh, we have to uh, earn you know, what we merit and earn a return and, and leverage our return in our finite resources. But um, so then that led to just this quiet movement that now I think we have people in like 32 countries now uh, who joined us in trying to live according to these 12 principles of business as unusual, uh, which are to grow your business, grow your visibility with integrity. It's to um, uh, recognize that you can collaborate more than compete, um, that do it together beats do it yourself, and so forth. And uh, so that's the way we, we operate at Tracking Wonder, which is, you know, it's a branding and thought leadership consultancy. And all of our clients, whether they're organizations or individuals or small businesses, are all they're all mission centered. And if they're not yet mission centered, that's in part what we help them do is like tap into not their mission statement, but their core values, their true core values that they share with their people um, and how to frame that into a brand story and then really live internally and externally according to those values. So quite often we'll see a brand that's out of alignment where uh you know you might see a, a quote creative agency that is um you know they live to uh to offer creative advertising campaigns for their clients and yet you look internally and there's nothing happening in the workplace that encourages creativity and a creative <laughs> right right I know this because i know the agency world from, from some people uh or uh, a health and wellness brand that where there's nothing in the workplace of that health and wellness brand that is encouraging health and wellness among its employees, right? So sometimes you'll see that sort of misalignment uh, between the external values and mission and what's happening in, internally. And that's in part what we help people do. And uh, it just so happens I am daily obsessed with tracking this thing uh, that we call wonder day in, day out. And so years ago when I decided to really show up publicly with the business, I thought, well, you know, I've got this tracking wonder project behind the scenes. I've been researching and going to call the business tracking wonder. And, and my father-in-law, he said, you know, you are the only person I know who could make a living tracking wonder. And I said, <laughs> I am. <laughs> oh, I love it. So help other people now, you know, make a living while tracking wonder behind the scenes or in their lives. Yeah. 
have you found when you sort of speak with these business owners or individuals and you show the inconsistencies that that they knew it all along but just didn't know how to implement it or was it they, they just didn't know yeah they knew it all along they didn't know how to articulate it okay too. Um, yeah. They didn't know how to articulate it, or they didn't know how quite to acknowledge it. And then they didn't know. Um, so many, uh, both organizations and individuals who, let's say, developed their business um, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, or, or 40 years ago in terms of one organization, uh, once they came online, um, they came online in an era when uh, a web presence was pretty generic mm-hmm. and just aiming to be professional generic. You know, don't stand out, use business ease. Your business shouldn't have any personality and it definitely shouldn't have a point of view on anything. Otherwise that might be controversial or, you know, scare people off or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's a combination of those things. They didn't know how to articulate the misalignment. They weren't quite sure they wanted to admit the misalignment and they definitely didn't know that they could show up with a point of view, lead with their mission and still be highly regarded right within their particular field. Let's talk about point of view a little bit because that is pretty risky, right? I mean, if you want to, you know, if you're a shoe company and you decide you want to make a political statement, I mean, is that what you mean as far as? point of view or do you stay out of that (laughs) that's a good question and actually um you know the conversation could go both ways so um you know there are some researchers uh who've been publishing recently in the harvard business review since about 2015 on what they call ceo activists Mm -hmm. and so more and more recently we see you know on both sides or all sides i should say of a political spectrum ceos more and more willing to take a risk, um, offend stakeholders, um, risk bottom line profits, which goes against all 20th century business philosophy of what the purpose of a corporation is for. Right. Uh, and, and sometimes take a stance on, on a social issue. So um, there is that, but that's not necessarily what I mean is that you have to assume a stance on um, a, a current social issue, uh, socially charged or politically charged issue. Although that, that certainly can be the case. Um, but I'll give you, well, I'll give you an example. So, um, recently a client has, a, a, an organization and, um, part of what I was seeing in terms of how they were wanting to show up as I, um, you know, without betraying any details of the client, I, I said, Oh, well, I see, you know, on your current website, it's obvious that, you guys um, promote diversity and inclusiveness, and um, and you're you know you're working with people who really want to feel free in their work, free to be who they are, free free in their lives. Like you're really appealing to this desire for freedom. So, like, what's the connection between diversity and inclusivity and freedom to be free <laughs> to who you are? Um, and so they were listening to that. And I said, you know, I'd look at your list of core values and you got like 15 of them here and none of them are standing out. And you're not really, um, you don't have a point of view yet on what freedom is for your brand. Like, so could you dive into like what diversity means to you? Why it's important for how your brand shows up? K 
can you say something about inclusivity and what that has to do with feeling free at work, free to you know pursue your own work life and be with others who are also feeling inclusive and diverse. So that was a beginning, and that's starting to help them shape their brand story point of view without necessarily being uh, politically charged or controversial. Right. Very cool. So for you, you know, so let's just take, um, let's take health and, and wellness. So uh, let's say you're a, a health and wellness coach. And I would say, so when you look around your field, when you look at other health and wellness coaches, what are some messages that you hear other health and wellness coaches uh, project that you think are incomplete or misleading? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll, I don't think you really want an answer, but I can yeah. give you one. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course you could. And then I would say, okay, well, muster your point of view, like develop what your point of view is and, you know, have a credible point of view and, and develop that point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's in part what I mean about developing a point of view is like really looking around, not just sending out how-to articles and, and always playing it safe, but actually having an interesting point of view. Yeah. So we, you know, we, for instance, at Tracking Wonder will only work with people who are mission-centered or who want to be. Um, I have plenty to say about how cynicism is a very easy route um, and how easy it is to be cynical about other human beings' motives or businesses or leaders' motives and so forth. But, you know, I think that's an easy route. I have lots of views. Yeah, it's low-hanging fruit, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's in part what I mean about having a point of view. And if some of your listeners, like, they're developing their own brand, so to speak, that simply means what's the emotional experience you want people to have with you? And if your brand is all about joy, well, What's the opposite of joy? Well, waking up every day and complaining would right. be <laughs> the opposite. So I have a point of view about that. Um, if you're, if one of your core values is kindness, um, so I have somebody who lives in the Bay Area where like they really want to be about kindness, and I said, well, let's take some stance. So what do you stand? You stand for kindness. What do you stand against? Um, well, being kind only to people who seem to be like you comic strata and i was like great assume that if you develop some content around that right interesting that opposition is interesting and it makes kindness interesting in opposition to that yeah and and i think i've fallen into this trap a few times as far as just kind of deviating from from who my core message well from what my core message has been and you know I'm a human and I screw up every once in a while but I'll you know I'll post something and then I will just get ripped you know to pieces yeah. for it step away from the computer for five minutes come back you know forty comments about how I'm a jerk and how I'm a hypocrite <laughs> I'm yeah. just like I was just having a bad day people I'm sorry <laughs> but it makes you step back and <clears throat> you know look at you know, what, what message do I want to convey? And I have to stay true to that even when I'm having a bad day. And it's just a matter of how I express it. I mean, I can express 
that I am frustrated and I am angry, but there are ways to do it effectively that brings the community together versus isolating. Um, That's completely you know. right. Yeah. So I'm not talking about <clears throat> ranting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely something else. Yeah. Yeah. So I should note, I, uh, I do have a hard stop in a couple of minutes. And, okay. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, let's, let's wrap it up with, with this one question then. So, um, the podcast is called the same 24 hours and it was born from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do in those 24 hours that makes us happy, healthy, and the best versions of ourselves. So what is something that you do, Jeffrey, that makes your days great? Mm. A lot, because I'm pretty obsessed with that. So <laughs> I, <laughs> as we were talking about before the recording. So um, one thing that I do, um, I, I have about four core things that I do every single morning. Um, and one of them is actually just part of a, a day book exercise is I write down today what I'm devoted to. And it will start today I'm devoted to blank. And, you know, that's a day with my family. Today I'm being fully present with my family. Today I'm devoted to equipping people to have more impact with integrity. And so I write that down as a reminder of how I can show up with my best self. Oh, I like that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I will post all the links to Tracking Wonder and all the things you've got going on. But I really had fun with this. I could We could have chatted for a long time, I think. I, yeah, <laughs> we I did agree. chat for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Meredith, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>